Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. Welcome to another session of The Art of Living. If someone were to ask you what to do about an 11-year-old who is not interested in attending religious school or Hebrew school, would you say force the issue? Would you say don't force the issue? This is not only a question of religious conviction or degree of religiosity. It's also a whole mindset concerning children and concerning Jewish education. Here's a letter from 1969 to someone in Indianapolis, Indiana. The letter is as follows. I was pleasantly surprised to note in your letter excerpts of letters from your son, as well as the spirit of your comments in this connection. Inasmuch as there is no end to the good, I trust that there will be a continuity in this direction, and moreover, that the good influence of your son will create a chain reaction affecting all the members of your family. I wish to take issue with you, however, on the subject of your youngest daughter, who, as you write, is 11 years old and has resisted starting Hebrew school. However, you, quote, did not force the issue, unquote. You can well imagine my reaction to this, for surely... If your 11-year-old daughter would have resisted going to school altogether, you would have found it necessary to, quote, force the issue, if the term force can indeed be applied here at all. Certainly, insofar as Jewish, a Jewish child is concerned, her Hebrew education is at least as important to her as a general education. This has been generally recognized throughout the ages, and should be particularly recognized in our own day and age, for we have seen many of the greatest and saintliest of our people exterminated. Consequently, all of us who have been fortunate enough to survive have a duty to make up for this tremendous loss. On the other hand, we see that the forces of total assimilation have grown much stronger in the free and democratic countries. You may consider my reference to your daughter's attitude and to your attitude in this connection no longer relevant since you write that she has now agreed to begin Hebrew school, though you immediately point out with apparent satisfaction that the method of instruction is habet ushema, see and hear, a system by which all accounts does not aim to lead to Va'asei, to the do. Surely there is no need to emphasize to you the fact that when the Torah was given to our people, na'aseh, we will do, was not only a condition of acceptance of the Torah, but a prior condition, the na'aseh before the nishma. Our sages of blessed memory pointed out that Jewish identity and the very basis of Jewish existence for the individual as well as for the people as a whole, lie in this great principle of na'aseh before nishma. First we will do, then we will hear. Certainly this is the way to train and educate a Jewish child. End of letter.
The first thing to notice is that the Rebbe demands intellectual honesty. You don't force the child to go to school if they don't want to. Well, that's not exactly true. Of course we force a child to go to school even if they don't want to. So if the child refused to go to school altogether, the Rebbe writes, you would have found it necessary to force the issue, if the term force can indeed be applied here. If a child doesn't want to go to school, if a child refuses to fulfill their obligations, obligations that the parent is absolutely convinced is necessary and not negotiable, do we then force children to go to school? It seems that those things we hold completely not negotiable, those things that are absolutely necessary in our minds, our children do not challenge. And we don't consider it forcing. It's simply describing reality. A child must go to school. That's not a struggle. That's not a battle between parent and child. That's simply a fact of life. In that case, the Rebbe is saying, isn't the Jewish education of a Jewish child equally not negotiable? Isn't that also a fact of life? A Jew must be a Jew. And how are you going to be a Jew if you have no idea what it means or how to do it? So Hebrew school, or the study of Judaism, should be considered as much a reality issue as general school. And then two things happen. There is no negotiation. There is no resisting, because children don't resist what is presented to them as reality. And secondly, we don't feel that we're forcing. We're simply raising our child correctly. And so the Rebbe says, intellectual honesty. You don't want to force the issue but in general education, you certainly would force the issue. So it's a matter of values, not for the child. It's a matter of the value in the, in the mind of the parents. The Rebbe then says that in our times, Jewish education is even more important for two reasons. Firstly, that we have lost so many great, knowledgeable Jews, teachers, scholars, role models, that we should feel responsible to replace them, to make sure that our children and ourselves take the place of those exemplary Jews who were lost in the Holocaust. And secondly, today is different than a few generations ago because the forces of assimilation have grown much stronger. And so Jewish education has become even more urgent. Number one, to keep the level of Jewish knowledge on the same high degree that it was in the past by replacing all the scholars and teachers and uh, knowledgeable Jews that were lost. And secondly, to resist the forces of assimilation that are particularly strong in our generation.
In the second part of the letter, the Rebbe speaks about the nature of the Jewish education and the style that schools use in educating young Jews. The school that this parent, father, chose for his daughter is a school that follows the principle or the philosophy of Habet Ushema. See and hear. But it doesn't emphasize the, the asay, the do of the mitzvah. And so the Rebbe points out that the doing is more important than the seeing and the hearing. Obviously, the point and the purpose to demonstrating Judaism and hearing about Judaism is in order to be able to do it, because the doing is the main thing. Let's consider another letter. This one from 1966. To a woman in Brooklyn, New York. It's a longer letter and a much deeper in terms of the psychology of children, which deserves study and consideration. The letter is as follows. I received your letter in which you enclosed a copy of my letter to your son. I am pleased to read in your letter that you are concerned about his religious education and behavior. This gives me the hope that you are doing everything possible to encourage him in his religious studies and observances, for it is very important for him to receive his parents' encouragement, all the more so in view of outside influences. It takes a great deal of moral stamina and strength of character to be able to ignore the negative influences of the street and the general environment to conduct oneself in a manner that is different and independent. This brings me to the point which you make in your letter, namely, that you don't think it right that your son should not shave, grow a beard, since the use of an electric razor is permitted. Without entering into the halacha aspect of the matter, I would like to point out something you are undoubtedly aware of, and that is your son's age. He is in transition from youth to maturity, a time of life that entails considerable strain. During the sensitive period of adolescence, it is particularly important not to do anything that might aggravate the strain. This is particularly true in a country such as this, where the boundaries between Jew and non-Jew, between Jew and Jew, are almost non-existent. Moreover, not only are Jews a minority, but to make matters worse, among Jews, observant Jews are as yet still a minority. This is why it requires a great deal of courage and conviction to be a strictly observant Jew, and under the circumstances also entails a considerable strain, as already mentioned above. For even mature adults are prey to influence, and it requires much willpower not to succumb, how much more so where a teenager is concerned. In light of the above, it is obviously the sacred duty of every near and dear one, and especially of parents, to do everything that may be conducive to the teenager's peace of mind, to make his struggle easier, and certainly to avoid anything which might weaken his willpower to resist the influences of the street, etc.
let's stop a moment and consider what the Rebbe is writing. Teenagers going from childhood to maturity are particularly sensitive. When a child decides with moral conviction and strength of character to go the way that they feel is the right way, even though it's not the popular way, this is expressing a very fine quality in the child. It's important to be able to maintain yourself in the melting pot of society. The Rebbe is saying, be careful not to put a strain on the child once the child has decided to be independent and go his own way. Because if you do, and that additional strain discourages and disheartens the child, then the influences of the street will flood him with all sorts of undesirable effect. Let's continue. A further point. In the realm of faith, religion, and feeling, every individual is a world unto himself. This is not the case in the realm of reason, where one can argue and convince and change the other person's mind. Young people especially become attached to an ideal, particularly one that is expressed in actual behavior. It can be extremely difficult to get such a person to change his feelings and conduct, and any effort to change this true nature when applied to a young person during this sensitive period of adolescence is fraught with serious implications. Let's stop here for a moment. It seems that the Rebbe is saying that people have their own faith, religious feelings, that makes them the individual that they are. Reason can always be argued, but you can't change a person's nature, at least not easily. So here's a problem. When a child expresses a conviction, it is certainly possible to out-argue the child, to reason with the child, and by force of reason, convince the child to change their behavior. The question is, You've changed the child's reasoning, but have you changed his feeling? Have you changed his faith? Have you changed his conviction? In most cases, that does not change. So there is, as the Rebbe says, serious implications when you, by reason, force a child to act against his nature. Let's continue. All the above leads to this conclusion. Inasmuch as your son has adopted a particular approach to the question of shaving and has done so despite the fact that this makes him different from many young people his own age, including some of his friends, yet he desires to adhere to this practice, this is clear proof of the importance which he attaches to it as part of his outlook and religious conduct. Therefore, any attempt to try to discourage him from this would be like dislodging a brick in the structure which your son has built up for himself, an act which could bring down the entire structure. As already asserted, this would be inadvisable under any circumstances, in any environment, and especially here in the United States of this day and age. 
for this is not a question concerning a difference between an extreme attitude or moderate one, but is directly related to the inner peace of the individual. In view of all that has been said above, I take the liberty of strongly urging you not to attempt to interfere with your son at this stage, but instead to give him the opportunity to conduct himself in this area of religion and feeling without inhibition. For quite the opposite, you should manifest an attitude of understanding and encouragement, safe in the knowledge that as in all matters of Torah and mitzvahs, carried out with faith and sincerity, this can only bring him God's blessings in all his needs, materially and spiritually. It seems, to put it in simple terms, that Ebbe is suggesting to this mother that although she feels that her son, growing a beard, would suffer isolation from friends, schoolmates, and she is, like any good mother, trying to help her son and protect him from this discomfort and from the social problems that having a beard would cause, the Rebbe is suggesting that she is looking only at the outside and is not going to the inner child. This is not merely a question of conforming or not conforming. This is not a question of being very religious or moderately religious. The question is, do you know your son? Do you know where he gets the strength of his convictions? How is it that he is so strong and so independent that he can voluntarily decide to be different from everybody else? Sure, it might cause him some problems. He's probably well aware of that. Teenagers are. And yet... He is determined to do this. A parent has to stop and consider the strength of that conviction. She underestimates her son and doesn't know him from the inside. The Rebbe is saying that when it comes to teenagers, when they are convinced of a moral principle, when they have devoted themselves in actual deed, not just expressing an opinion, but they're going to behave a certain way because of a moral conviction, you may not agree with that conviction. You may not share that conviction, but you have to treat it with respect because this is the true character of the child. If you take that away, you've destroyed the character. Now he becomes a victim of his environment. Now he becomes a follower, no longer a leader. This is something we need to give a lot of thought to. I just want to add that I know of a case where parents sent a letter to the Rebbe bemoaning the fact that their teenager had fallen in love and was determined to marry a classmate the parents felt that this classmate was irresponsible, would never make a living, was out of touch with reality, and so on. And they wanted to force them to abandon the idea. The Rebbe said that they should go ahead with the marriage. And when the parents then suggested to the Rebbe that at least 
They're going to try to delay the marriage for a year or so. The Rebbe said, God forbid, do not interfere. I think the principle there is the same as the one in this letter. You can convince a child logically to go against their nature and against their deepest feelings, but the consequences might be tragic. And so we have to be very careful. Teenagers are extremely idealistic. And when we suggest that they be less idealistic, they lose all respect for us. And that's why it is so important, going back to the first letter, a Jewish child must receive a Jewish education from the youngest age, long before they are teenagers, to guide them, to mold them for life as teenagers so that they have the right convictions and the right ideals and not become deeply attached to an ideal that isn't worthy. Let's continue. This is a letter to a doctor in Massachusetts, and this is from 1976. Your letter in which you write in reference to your daughter reached me with some delay. I trust I need not emphasize to you that I do not, God forbid, give any orders. I can only give advice when I'm asked for it. And, of course, I can only give advice to the best of my understanding and assessment of what it is that constitutes the best interests of the person seeking my advice. Clearly, I must consider the immediate future of the person and his material advantages, but also what will ensue a lasting benefit to that person, particularly from the point of view of his or her peace of mind. If human happiness has always been predicated on inner peace and harmony, it is especially so in our age of confusion. For a Jew, true inner harmony and peace can be attained only if his lifestyle does not run counter to his essence, which is something he cannot change or alter and which is his inheritance from countless generations. In other words, a Jew can be in harmony with himself only if his life is authentically Jewish. No material riches can substitute for it. I surely need not elaborate to you regarding the state of the present-day younger generation, nor do I need to emphasize that there is no greater blessing than to feel secure and steadfast, against the change and upheaval from day to day and from one extreme to the other, affecting everything from basic standards of modesty and morality to the basic concepts of Yiddishkeit. These are the considerations that motivate me when young people ask me for my advice. The rest is up to them. However, it certainly makes it easier for them if they are also encouraged by others. May God, whose benevolent providence extends to each and every one individually, grant you much true nachas from your daughter and the ability to enjoy it in happy circumstances. From the letter to this doctor in Massachusetts, it seems that the doctor had written to the Rebbe concerning advice that the Rebbe had given his daughter. Obviously, that his daughter pursue a Jewish education and a Jewish lifestyle, while the doctor would prefer that she do what is necessary to ensure 
a better income, a better material life. The Rebbe's answer to this is, number one, I don't give orders. I give advice. Your daughter sought advice. And in responding to her, I had to consider her immediate benefit and the long-term, the long-lasting benefit. In this age of confusion, the Rebbe says, it is so important for a Jew to find inner harmony and peace. And therefore, when the daughter asked what is the most important thing for her to do, naturally the Rebbe's answer was, whatever it takes to bring you into harmony with who you really are, and that is your Jewish identity. No amount of material comfort, no amount of uh, material wealth can ever produce the peace of mind that harmony with yourself produces. And in the end, the Rebbe says, may God, whose benevolent providence extends to each and everyone individually, which means that God is concerned and therefore provides each person with their needs, material needs, and can be trusted to do so for our children as well. So may God, whose benevolent providence extends to each and every individual, grant you much true nachas from your daughter and the ability to enjoy it. In other words, the Rebbe is ending with the thought that the daughter would not be sacrificing her material comforts God will provide the material comforts through divine providence. What we need to do, our obligation, the freedom of choice that we have, and therefore the responsible choice, is to seek the holy and the godly. This is not given from heaven. But the material stuff, this does come from heaven, and God can be trusted to provide that. So the Rebbe is saying, I am not asking your daughter to sacrifice for her Jewish identity. I'm simply saying that God will provide the material. Your daughter needs to concern herself with her spiritual welfare. And the only way that a Jew can be in a healthy state is, of course, to be a healthy Jew. Because as a result of many generations, the Jewish identity that we have is our essential identity, more permanent, more lasting than any other identity we might take on. The parent, in this case, is a doctor. The identity of doctor is very strong, and much sacrifice is made for it, many sleepless nights, etc. And yet, one is not always a doctor. Before he went to school, he was not a doctor, and when he retires, he will no longer be a doctor. Whereas Jewish identity begins even before birth and is rooted in generations that precede us and will continue after 120 years when the soul returns to heaven as a Jewish soul and continues to be concerned with the Jewishness of its descendants, of future generations. So the Rebbe says, let your daughter take care of her neshama, and God will take care of her income.